This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. She walked daintily amongst the bones and stones, a path worn round and smooth by the countless feet that marched across this desolate land. Great towers of basalt touched the ceiling, and the great expanse of the cave stretched for miles in all directions. There was only one entrance to the north, a small and rickety staircase leading from the mortal realm to this one. Any poor creature, unfortunate to make the trip, was chilled during the descent by the mere atmosphere of death, that great, empty void of inanimate being. Like the draft through an open door, any warmth was sucked from the body, and any mental fortitude cast aside. Heroes cried in terror. Their muscles shriveled and their hearts skipped beats. Their last moments of life in a cacophony of bodily demise. And Persephone watched them silently, no more a grimace than a smile crossing her face. Instead, it seemed to her like watching water cascade down a mountainside, throthing and bubbling, and a natural way of the world. She wondered, however, how it felt to go through such a tragedy, to be ripped from the world you're so familiar with and be left writhing in an unimaginable hell. It was her fate, after all. Perhaps they considered following her. Perhaps some of them wanted to know that wonderful feeling of being a part of the past and the future, that ascendant understanding of these two realms, of the dead and of the living. The history of archaeologists comes with some baggage, or, if you like, context. In amidst the gold items, bodies, and human remains have been an important part of the story of history. For example, showing the difference at various stage of human evolution. 
the proto-human spectacle was the center of curiosities, leading on to depictions in film and literature as to the nature of these Stone Age ancestors. No matter how they were admired and how much intrigue they asked for, these items of human remains were, however, oddities, curios. They were objects tied to the idea of humanity, but not necessarily to the person themselves, arranged sometimes haphazardly or mixed up. Bones were sorted for best presentation and not accuracy. And perhaps, had they known better, they would have tried better. I'm sure of it. Is it really fair to criticize old customs? Surely they wouldn't be repeated today. Or at least they, they wouldn't be allowed to be continued. times did we cross that line? How many times did we as archaeologists and we as humans go too far? I would like to consider in this episode human remains. I won't be talking about how ethics are taught in a university. Instead, I'm going to cast my nets a little bit broader. I'm going to talk about how archaeologists fit in to the wide spaces between the living and the dead and how perhaps we can learn to respect the dead a little better if we empathize with them many people would assume that we have had for a very long time a respect for the dead it makes sense we look at things like desecration as this horrible thing we look at the treatment of a body in a very important way but it's not always been like that. And in some ways, I feel as if there are a few compounding factors as to the way in which we rationalize how to treat bodies. For example, a freshly made corpse is far closer to ourselves than a couple of bones a thousand years old. And yet they were both once human, but one of them we treat with the utmost reverence and respect. The other, we probably couldn't care less about. But why? What is the difference that time makes? Is it simply that we can see ourselves dead, reflected in the body that lies before us? But we could never imagine ourselves as the bones. We could never imagine that could ever mean us. And I think this comes down to the fact that we tie our very existence to our physical bodies, that our bodies are somewhat a testament to ourselves, that whatever shape we are, that whatever hair we've chosen to style says something about us. And thus, a body means a lot about us, for it's the last thing that anybody can ever see of us. It's the last thing that gets looked at. It's what cements us into the, the next world. However, the Victorians 
had a different idea about bodies. In a time of increased death due to various diseases and a lack of medical knowledge to help treat people, graveyards were overflowing with bodies. We all know of the stories of Burke and Hare, of the grave robbers who provided corpses and cadavers to medical students for analysis. But that's not even the worst of the mistreatment of the dead. You see, Burke and Hare were working under the cover of darkness. They were outcasts. They had to clandestinely raid the graveyard. And yes, they were paid by an institution. But still, there was shame there to be had. If you look at other medical practices of the Victorian age, you'll find human bodies and human remains used in much more gruesome ways. I'd like to direct your attention to mummy medicine, not from your mother, but from mummified bodies. With the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb, a Egyptomania took hold of the Western world during the 1920s with all things Egyptian being the fashion. But before this, Egypt had a different meaning. Ancient mummies were crushed up into fine powder and added to ointments and tonics. Human remains were crushed, reduced to nothing, and in some weird technical cannibalism were given to people to help them with a number of different ailments. Now, of course, if you'd ask any of these people to consume the flesh, living flesh of another person, they may have been offended. They may have considered you some sort of satanic demon, but properly prepared they would consume the body of another without thought. Or perhaps these dead bodies were not the same dead bodies. These dead bodies had gone into a world beyond. They were no longer human. Now I want to tell you a story about Charles Byrne, a Northern Irishman like myself so please do take this story with a pinch of salt. Perhaps I'm just being biased. Charles Byrne was born around in the north of Ireland, as the two countries had not been separated. I've got two reports, one saying he was born in Armagh, the other saying he was born near Londonderry slash Derry. What we do know is that in 1761, he traveled to Scotland to attempt to make his fortunes. He became a celebrity after moving to London and was a much-loved curiosity. His kind demeanour and good nature made him a particular favourite of the people of London. Unfortunately, he died aged 22, possibly due to the condition that had given his great height, acromegaly, a growth hormone disorder. At the time, it was commented that possibly his love 
of drinking and gambling had some way contributed to his death. Before his death, Charles's health declined and had discussed that he wanted to be buried at sea in a lead-lined weighted coffin, lest his body was taken and dissected or analysed or put in a museum. Some accounts even detail that Charles was particularly worried about one particular surgeon, John Hunter. And now, although the records and accounts are vague, there is agreement that money was exchanged for Charles's body. John Hunter, the well-known anatomist, either intercepted Charles's body on the way to the docks for burial at sea, or Hunter paid Charles's friends in exchange for the body. Nonetheless, against the expressed wishes of Charles, the body was taken, reduced to a skeleton, and then assembled and arranged for the Hunterian Museum in the London College of Surgeons. The London College of Surgeons. It took four years for Hunter to place Charles's skeleton prominently on display, and perhaps his hesitation reflected a concern that he'd had about the skeleton's display. Hunter made sure in his description of the bones not to mention any name or make any reference to the Irish giant, moniker, a skeleton of a tall man. Now, even if we do disregard Hunter's original sin in taking the body against the wishes of the deceased, Surely, these historical accounts would provide some evidence for the removal and the appropriate burial for the specimen. However, it should not surprise you to note that the Hunterian Museum continues to display the body of Charles Byrne under the guise of maintaining their collection or insufficient evidence. In contrast to this, a number of petitions have been made as well as comments by the British Medical Society in their journal, but to no avail. Even a letter from the mayor of Derry, slash Londonderry, requesting a reconsideration of the body for burial, fell on deaf ears. So I ask you, understanding all points of that example, would you, if you sat on the Hunterian Museum board, would you repatriate the body? Or would you keep it, not only in your archives, but on prominent display in the Hunterian Museum? I'm not... I obviously have a specific um, answer to this question. I've made my views on repatriation very clear when it comes to things like Native American burials and with regards to Maori burials as well and items that the university I went to had. So I'm sure you know what I'm going to say about this body, but I'd like to know what you think about it. Would you be willing to keep it on display if you knew that the person whom those bones belonged to did not want it? Oh, fair Persephone, look at this poor soul wrenched from his resting place. Grant us the simplest peace and the fullest slumber. And finally, 
I want to briefly touch upon the resurrection of dead celebrities and the digital necromancy involved. Since the Super Bowl, there's been rumours of a hologram of Prince, and these were met with fury because it didn't sit well with the passed away performer. In an interview in the 90s, Prince remarked that the holographic performances of the dead musicians with living ones was some form of demonic ritual. And to some certain extent, I actually can see where he's coming from. The abstract image of a person, recreated by a computer performing to a song, but in reality dead, it does really make us consider whether the performer would have wanted such a display of themselves. Of course, we as the living can maintain, well, of course, they, they, this person has to have wanted to perform with all these other people. They performed with so many other musicians in their lifetime. But I feel a lot of the time we are making excuses rather than providing real answers to this question. And I want to talk about this idea of consent not with regards to recent revelations that we've had, which are obviously completely different matters of consent. I really want to make that very clear, that I'm not talking about that kind of consent. What I'm talking about is, when we dig up bones, do we, or we put the skeletons, when we put skeletons on display, are we always sure that these people wanted it to be like that? And if they didn't, what are the reasons we shouldn't respect their wishes if we know about them? On what grounds can we say, well, they're dead, so it doesn't matter? And is that really the kind of society we wish to be? With regards to the Prince performance at the Super Bowl, there were clips used of uh, Prince's previous performances, not a hologram, and Justin Timberlake merely accompanied on piano. Um, In these cases, um, I think we're entering a kind of ethical paradigm of consent and bodily use. Of course, it's one thing to skeletonize a corpse and place it in a museum, and another entirely to create a musical performance. But in both cases, as I've said, could it not be said that the body as a representation of that person is being misused? Following on from our relation to bodies, it makes sense for us to associate ourselves with our physical bodies because that's really all we have left when we die. And what was really most striking to me with regards to the Charles Byrne case was the admittance of the law that it provides very little protection for the body with regards to the deceased's wishes, especially if they're not written down in legal form. Usually the body is under the protection of the immediate family and thus is usually taken care of. But then what happens to old bones? To bodies without any ties to the present, save for maybe one line of history, if that. Now, if we were to accept that even 200 years ago, individuals had reservations about being dug up and displayed in museums, 
Why should it be any different for even further back in time? Is there a time limit on which we care for the dead? And what is the difference between a recently deceased body that informs us to be more respectful? Where does this disconnect happen? 25 years? 50 years? 70 years? 200 years? If we have a body tens of thousands of years old, could we ever consider whether that person wanted to be displayed? And if their opinion doesn't matter, why should a more recent person's wishes matter? Isn't a body a body? Taking on board these questions, maybe we can come back to the theme of Persephone, the goddess of the underworld, traveling between the living and the dead. Surely she is the patron goddess of archaeology, if we tie it to that theme. But I use her as a metaphor for how archaeologists may feel, that they work with both the living and the dead. They seem to travel from one side to another. And in other ways, they a lot of archaeologists, especially commercial ones, work certain field seasons. And just like Persephone would exit the underworld in one season and go back the next, archaeologists seem to dip into this world of commercial archaeology and then dip out of it in a sort of cyclical pattern and I wonder when it comes to the treatment of bodies whether archaeologists are the best equipped to talk about the differences in bodies and how we should treat them my final little example is a more difficult one to talk about because it's pretty horrid and it's come up a number of times and yeah I'm, I'm going to preface this with it's pretty disgusting but if you were in any part of the Archeo Twitter sphere last year you may have heard of Nazi war diggers a group of Americans and some others who went to the Eastern Europe and went through old battlefields to dig up bodies the issues really began with the entire premise, as one of the American individuals was a pawnbroker who was interested in Nazi memorabilia. So you had to wonder why really was he there? Not just expertise, but a collector of Nazi memorabilia? It's a bit suspicious at the very least. But that wasn't even the worst of anything. I mean, sure, maybe he collects Nazi memorabilia, but it wasn't that that we had a problem with. It wasn't that that we had a problem with. What we had an issue with is one of the cast members picking up a helmet with a skull in it and letting the skull drop down onto the floor. People wrenching bones from the earth instead of carefully excavating them, noting them down where they are, perhaps associating them with a person. The show was eventually never really aired in its entirety on UK television. I believe in the end only one, the first episode was ever shown. But what it demonstrates to me is that in this theatre spectacle of television, these bodies 
It didn't matter that they weren't 200 years old. They were fairly recent, and yet they didn't matter. Because ultimately all it was was the literal remains of people. Alongside helmets, alongside grenades, alongside buttons, badges and clothes. All of these were just mere inanimate objects, artifacts. And I think that is as close to disgusting as it ever can get when we talk about archaeology. So my next question to you is, at what point do we disrespect a body? What form does it have to take for us to forget it's a person? And when we display bodies in museums, do we really need to? Can we do it in a better way? And how do we deal with a body that's hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands years old? They never even thought of a museum. But they may have known or believed that a body should not be disturbed after it been placed in the underworld. And sometimes, for some specific reasons, I feel very much the same way. been a presentation of the archaeology podcast network visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com There's no feeling in this place The echoes of the past speak louder than Any voice I hear right now Don't you ever try to be more than you were destined for or anything worth fighting for. There's no feeling in this place. There's no feeling in this place, feeling in this place, feeling in this place, this place, feeling in this place, feeling in this place.